Well, hello there. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Post-political and cinema, so I do lots of Zizek stuff in film. That's cool. Love Zizek. Do you really? <laughs> yeah, it's official now. <laughs> We're the only people left who still like Zizek. That's the <laughs> yeah. the other tag, the other strap line of the podcast, which we don't use. Ah, weakling! Everybody else is a weakling! True. Hello, and welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, your global politics podcast. Today we're talking about next month's Oscars and the politics of film more widely. Alongside our irregular regulars, Phil and Alex. Hello. Hey. Sorry, I should have said say hi, but... You you managed to do that. We're mel- uh, welcoming special guest Marin Tom. Hi. Did I pronounce your surname correctly? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So It'll basically, do. no. <laughs> <laughs> how how do you pronounce? <laughs> Fucking hell! Tom. How do you pronounce your surname? How do you pronounce your Tom. name? Marin Tom. Marin Tom. No, don't don't. This is meant, no, it's it's fine. Marin, Marin, it's fine. This is meant to be the Global Politics Podcast, and we need to make an effort to pronounce names correctly. So I think, George, that you should actually make a proper effort to pronounce our German guest's name correctly. You yeah. managed to pronounce Alex's name correctly, so you should be able to pronounce Marin's name correctly as well. That's true. Okay, I'll do that. So to get started, Marin, what was what was the worst film you saw this year and why? Oh, the worst film. That's That's always a good question. <sighs> What do you mean? So, what do you mean by worst? I mean, if you go by the Razzies, films like Baywatch or the Emoji Movie were the worst films, and I mean they're not, oh, you know, they're not Citizen Kane. But I really enjoyed Baywatch. I, I thought it was funny. I like The Rock. He can do no wrong. What I don't like is pretentious films. So, the worst film I saw was I think Mother, the Aronofsky one. Yeah. Yes. So that was just basic gibberish in the Aronofsky style. And, but on the other hand, maybe he wanted to say something greater and you just can't, you know, he's just a pretentious twat. But the worst, but then that was the worst film I saw over the year. But then I saw The Shape of Water and I thought that was the worst film I've seen in a long time. Not really? just the years. Yes, it was, it's dreadful. This is very curious because I'm actually I'm a big fan of uh, Del Toro, and I was curious to hear so why you think it's so bad. I know. I, I thought you know I thought I liked Del Toro, I like Pan's Labyrinth and Mother and all these films. So I thought, oh, what what can go wrong? And boy, does it go wrong! It's uh, <laughs> when I said I don't like pretentious films. This is a very pretentious film, and it's pre- not pretentious in a good way. It's like. <laughs> I don't know. Has any of you seen it? No, no, no. I would say, maybe you can oh. say what, what, uh, what, in what yeah, way it's pretentious. It, what does it aim it to comes, do? It, it yeah. comes out on the most pretentious day of, of film release for a film like that, the fourteenth of February. So, <laughs> really targeting a specific market. Yes, and it is basically it's 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 so full of bad metaphors. It makes Guy Ritchie look really good. Um, it's. It's really turgidly unvalicious, so so subtle it ain't. And so it's a shape of water, and it's it's also bad because it's like this American liberal fantasy, and it's it's like a man trying to make a feminist film, and it's just very embarrassing top to bottom. So it's it's the shape of water, and the biggest 
uh, yeah, the, the biggest metaphor is, of course, the water itself. Everything in this film looks wet. It's, everything's damp and penetrated by water. Even when you're outside and the sun's shining, <laughs> the floor is wet and the air feels really damp. So it's got this damp and wet atmosphere. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> but, yeah... It, it, it's like, yeah, as I say, it's like an American liberal wet dream. It's, it's literally wet. And uh, so we're, we're setting out our stall at the beginning there. The yeah, Shape of Water, which got 13 Oscar cool. nominations, is not the film of the year. It's the worst film of the year. Absolutely. But uh, we can get to why it is very popular very quickly. Because it is this kind of, the water is this heavy metaphor for a different world. So... Not and it constantly penetrates this this water penetrates the world as this this nineteen fifties American super patriarchy. It's capitalist. It's post war America, and it's constantly the, the water is seeping in. It's the kind of other world, and all the white men in this film are nasty, power hungry, sadistic, misogynist. It's so cartoonish. So the main antagonist that is Michael Shannon, he captures this Brazilian sea monster um, and brings it into this government laboratory, uh, only to be happy to kill it for the glory of America. So he's, and he's really this cartoonish, toxic male who regularly assaults and molests women, makes racist remarks off the cuff, and he's really bad and selfish. He's bad and bad. I thought maybe he could redeem himself there, but he doesn't. Forced <laughs> <laughs> by the system when he buys himself this kind of symbolic penis Cadillac car. And all the good characters are black, gay, and female. and Brazilian, presumably, as well. And they're really good, and the bad men are really bad. And the main character is played by uh, Sally Hawkins, and she plays this mood, mute woman uh, working in this laboratory. She falls in love with this sea man and helps him escape. And, and water is her element, so we see her constantly doing stuff with water. She masturbates every morning in the water, and she, she makes her food with the water. So she's like this, and, uh, and her muteness is kind of, um, uh, yeah, so, so she makes these eggs every morning for, uh, for lunch. So there's already so much female symbolism that is, is, is quite sickening. And so one of her jobs in the laboratory is constantly to fight the water getting in. So she, you see her constantly mopping around the water. So and then, of course, there is the old cliche, old feminist trope of mute women. They are this is part and parcel of feminist film studies. Oh, women, no, you know, I don't have a voice, and they're cut off by men. It's like it's already really turgid here, and and not only that, she's this kind of manic pixie dream girl type, the kind of quirky Amelie character, the kind of thing men imagine sexy alternative women to be like. You know what? What Adam and Joe in their podcast coined the Ula Palala girl. It's like, it's a really physically weak and she cannot stand up to men. She's not everybody's equal. So her only escape is this parallel water world and then she finds love in the sea creature. So, and so. So, so just, just, just for listeners there, a shout out to the Adam and Joe podcast, which is yeah. one of the best podcasts of all time, <laughs> um, except for, for us, obviously. But actually this, the way that you're describing this, it makes, it, it makes me think that, you know, this this brings into into view some of the potential problems that we might have with the Oscars. 
And I think probably the first question here is, you know, given that this this film got thirteen nominations, it's it's the the picture the picture film of the of this season of this year's Oscars. Does this raise the question of why should we care about the Oscars? Isn't it basically the most bait, the most Hollywood, liberal, schlocky, cliche-ridden and unsubtle film films of the year that are just being put, <laughs> put forward for people who who basically need this level of obviousness to get to get anything out of films? Yeah, but then there are other good nominees, which I really like. So should we care about the Oscars? Well, of course we should. I mean, everybody's talking about them. And I think there's something... Well, I mean, there have been actually studies that say that the Oscars themselves are a really good indicator of the average agreement of cinematic creativity in America. So they were taking into account all several other U.S. sort of film awards, but they are far more specific, giving out by far more specific guilds and so on. They're a bit more specialized. So the Oscars then um, combine everything and give a good average of the sort of creative output of Hollywood. So the Oscars are a nice way of measuring of what we can say, this is Hollywood. So the Oscars themselves are, are the awards we should look out for here in this um, so- so they're the they're the most representative of they're of most representative. So so they're, they're they're statistically the most representative of what Hollywood is, but also that implies that these are the films that Hollywood likes. And if we accept that America is often understood through this kind of self mythologizing, hmm. Hollywood films are the way how America understands and sees itself. So they're very insightful. They're a very insightful way of understanding sort of what is going on. Um, for that one, though, one has to understand what Hollywood is, and it is first and foremost this kind of profit machine. And the Oscars are basically a way for this machine to acknowledge its own relevance in the self-mythologizing of America. So it always has to be um, a concentrated voice of what is going on? What is the dominant US ideology at the moment? So yes, if this is a liberal schlocky film, all the better to analyze. That's that's the bad thing about being a film uh, studies person, that you always have to analyze these really horrible films because they are actually really rich in telling you what is actually going on. Well, thanks. Thanks for watching this, uh, The Shape of Water for us. So we 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 can dodge we that bullet. To, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so it's it's kind of interesting then if if the the Oscars nominations are representative of of the way that Hollywood sees itself in America more generally. This this raises the figure of of Meryl Streep getting yet another Best Actress nomination, bringing it to seventeen Best Actress and four Best Supporting Actress what, nominations. What was it? What was it for again? Just remind us. She got nominated for the post. She oh, it's for the music. post. Okay, because I saw Steven. that actually. Yeah, I thought it was quite good um, because it's Meryl Streep, and it's a film by Steven Spielberg, and they both are, you know, the people. Steven Spielberg is like the Usain Bolt of cinematic storytelling. He's just the best, and if Usain Bolt wins for the fifth time against everybody else, it just becomes a bit repetitive. But it's still the best, you know. There's a kind of still, you know, in comparison to other cinematic storytellers, there's there's little in between. Is 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 that the right analogy, or is it more that he's like the Ed Sheeran, <laughs> the most the most popular 
the the, <laughs> the the one that everybody turns to. So he's not actually the best. He's just the one that that everybody seems to to be able no, to stand. No, he 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 churned that film out in nine months. He knows what he's doing. He can, and it is a beautifully told story. I mean, and it is nobody else can tell a story about a newspaper thing like um, Steven Spielberg. It's a really boring story. I was going to say, I have to disagree with you, Maren. Like, I think it's my contender for the worst movie I saw. I mean, I haven't seen, I didn't see that many movies in the last year. But um, it's so, it's such a smug Hollywood. I mean, okay, I haven't seen, to be fair, I haven't seen um, the water movie. But like... Um, Let's call it the water movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's sitting next to the emoji movie. Like, you know... Yeah, exactly, yeah. But it's so, it's so, it's kind of so transparently, crudely anti-Trump and so smug and liberal, um, you know, lots of rich, powerful white people who feel good about themselves because, you know, hey, we're rich, we're white and we're against Richard Nixon and we're great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course it is, but it is really well told. It's a really well told film. And uh, the acting is great, and it, it is not heavy-handed. I think the heavy-handedness is, is really subtle, and it's, you know... What about the last scene where they, like... There's the last scene where um, the woman on the floor, on the newsroom floor, relays the kind of verdict of the Supreme Court judges, and spoiler alert, but Richard Nixon doesn't win. Um, <laughs> Do you know where it falls apart, that film? Yeah, tell It's me. when, when uh, Steven Spielberg tries to be a feminist filmmaker and throws in all these elements like this girl who um, tells Meryl Streep how much she admires her and just go, oh, this, this, the whole story falls apart here. Or when Meryl Streep walks out of the courthouse and there are all these young women looking up the staircase at her and you just go, why? This is not a Steven Spielberg movie. Why did he put this in? This whole film falls apart. So as soon as he tries to be sort of super trendy about this, this feminism it just doesn't work it was that was heavy-handed and i think i mean you know like you say it was kind of transparently crude i thought also though i mean it's such um you know it's a paper the washington post is a paper which is kind of very actively pursued an anti-trump line and then right at the end so i mean this is where the movie i thought just kind of cataclysmically kind of collapsed through the floor for me was right at the end when um it plays one of the um recordings from the Nixon White House where Nixon is saying that he's banning the Washington Post from the White House in very kind of uncertain terms. And the movie ends there, if I recall correctly. And that was when I thought, you know, just so kind of so crudely cast against Trump and trying to kind of tell a story about the present with no real effort at distance. Anyway, so it was my great disappointment, basically. I think it's um, very interesting because I think this is one of the few films that is nominated that could be called a a real Trump um, reaction film. Because I think he started shooting it last February and he did it in nine months. So it was one of these very films that was done very quickly. Um, So So if you want to have a film that is really a reaction to Trump, then the post it is, is would be the one. So yeah, this is this is one of the one of the I think really interesting questions um, here. So Peter Bradshaw in in the Guardian article in 23rd of January, look it up, listeners, if you're interested, described this nomination list that we've been talking about as a cautious comfort food list in Trumpian times. So we're living in a in a in a time when Hillary Clinton can make a cringeworthy cameo at the at the Grammys, reading from Fire and Fury, 
so the question is have we reached this kind of trumpian age of of hollywood cinema already has the liberal uh, american liberal elite suffered so deeply from trump that you can already see it in the films you mentioned there that spielberg shot that was particularly mm. um giving things away do you think that's do you think we can say that we're in a trumpian and maybe an age of trumpian reaction or reaction to trump in hollywood yeah there, there, there's some things to consider. First of all, you know, the post is an exception. Most films are actually made and considered long time before, so several mm. years before, and they were probably starting production when Trump was elected. You know, Jordan Peele to get out, he, I think he made it or thought about it um, in the, during the first Obama um, um, administration, where everybody just thought, yeah, yeah, no more racism. And so... But that this film has now the reading that it has is quite interesting. So what what this what Trumpian probably means is that we read films through the lens that we are, you know, through through the moment of time that we're in, and that is living with the Trump as president. And of course, this moment um, helped the kind of film to be selected for the Oscars that have been selected. So, yes, we can say they are Trumpian in this respect, but what do they have in common, these films? You know, why have they been selected as these films of this moment in time? So the films themselves might not be designed to be Trumpian, but they're read as can only read the films through this very moment in time. Presumably there's not going to be a pro-Trump move by Hollywood next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that would be interesting. What would be a tro- pro-Trump movie? Well, I mean, what what was the? And I mean, this is TV, but um, always this was discussed back in, uh, I think, back at the time of the election, looking at what uh, Repub- what was the most watched. I think was a Republican voters' TV show, which was uh, Duck. What's a Duck Dynasty? Um, whereas the most liberal one or the most Democrat voting one was um, was I think Orange is the New Black or something like that. So I guess it would be a film like the I don't know like Duck Dynasty. anybody has anybody actually watched that? Is, no, is it about ducks? About it. Is it about Scrooge McDuck and, and <laughs> it's, whole, not about, whole... it's not about Scrooge McDuck. No, Dewey. I think it's um, like it's a, it's like a reality TV series about a family um, in. I, don't I think know, it's a phony reality Louisiana. TV series. Yeah, like in Louisiana they, or something like that. It's like um, Beverly Hillbillies, so it's like a hillbilly kind of backwards white trash family make it big on the lottery or something like that, and okay. they, you know, and apparently it's very good. It's very well made. It's very sophisticated and funny and self deprecating. Um, I mean, this is all reported to me. I've not actually seen it, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, I mean, it's kind of Beverly Hillbillies, I think. So we'll wait until the next the next season of The Apprentice before we have uh, something which supersedes that. Um, so but yes, if we, if we think about the idea that um, if if this moment in time is, is our Trumpian lens, so to speak, the film that has the most nominations must be logically the most Trumpian film, you know, if it has been picked. <laughs> and it's The Shape of Water, and so I agree, it's probably the most Trumpian of all of them. And uh, but it has happened the same last year. You know, um, I think La La Land had 40 nominations and it's, it was a terrible musical. But you know that um, the, the idea is that uh, when, when people feel anxious and afraid, middle class people go to musicals. 
So musicals are massive at the moment, and it's a real good indicator of how people are feeling. So this terrible Hugh Jackman film where he plays this circus master um, was a real box office success, but it was not a good film. But people love musicals at the moment. Wait, just just quickly, could you just quickly explain that? What's the logic of um, middle-class anxiety leading to musicals? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so the... So the um, the idea has always been that, that um, musicals are kind of um, escapism in, in a, a Hollywood kind of style of escapism. What Heimat film was for German audiences after the war, the musical is that for American middle class people, if they want to go through a moment of crisis, musicals become really popular and become really uh, well visited. So there's a big musical surge at the moment. Uh, on on Broadway and as well as the West End, so I think that has something to do with this. Most, yeah, even the even the Shape of Water has a little bit of a musical element in it. So this is how on trend that film is. Good grief! So this this also seems to 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 correspond directly to Hamilton as well, which I haven't seen, but I put a lot of money on being being terrible. So I mean, I guess these <laughs> so these these sort of, these sort of musicals are pretty innocuous, difficult to dislike except for being too saccharine but what so in this in this article that i mentioned earlier bradshaw also says that the the list of nominations is missing something truly ferocious and polarizing i mean do you agree with this what do you think was the most divisive film of the year well we we live in a time when people see and rate film along these very narrow, narrow lines of representation so all reviews and all criticism is always about um um, who is shown in what kind of way? Are there any women in it? Why is there, are, no, are there no black people in Dunkirk? So it's a really kind of bizarre <laughs> way of, of film criticism. And it's all film criticism is according to these terrible lines. It's a film criticism of fools. It forgoes any context or purpose or any kind of artistic merit film has. And because these things seem to require intelligence and humanity to discuss and talk about. So there's a real, any kind of divisiveness about the film is always along the lines of these readings of representations. Um, so I don't think, I don't think that I have got any marriage to be engaged with. But the only debate that really got people going, I think, was um, uh, it. You know, because people really liked it and it was discussed in terms of its cinematic quality. Did it work or not? Was it scary or not? And so half people thought, oh, yeah, it was really scary. And the other half said, no, it wasn't scary at all. So that was a film that was discussed in terms of, you know, did it work as a as a film? I think that's a really excellent point about criticism being reduced to, to representation um or, or or an analysis of who's who's represented and who's not did anybody criticize it for its misrepresentation of clowns um, i'm sure <laughs> so i mean one that's what that wasn't we... what the jugglers march was about was it <laughs> <laughs> we demand represent fair representation um, yeah, so what, what about um what about Blade Runner then? Because this is I was what gonna I was going to say. That was pretty divisive, yeah. Yeah, because I thought this 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 was that, one that... that would be my other choice of um, uh, critic. Yeah, that 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 really divided people into, um, and I think there's a big debate going on between the divisions between critics and fans. The same with Star Wars. 
So the, the kind of new Star Wars and Blade Runner was very much a division between the critics who really liked it and sort of the fans who didn't, and Star Wars as well. So And I think this was highlighted by this Netflix film with Will Smith. He played this kind of um, cop that works together with an orc, and it was a Netflix <laughs> film. It was, it was awful. It was really bad. But the fans loved it, really, really. Now Netflix are making a second part just because there was like a big um, backlash of fans loving this trashy, trashy film. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was pants, you know, it was, it was really, really, okay. So there's a big debate about going, going on about the discrepancy between fans and their experience of something and critics and their, you know, critics acclaim of a, a film as a piece of art. So is there a next stage in identity as being like an orc or something like it's something which is even more far out than all the identity categories that are available to us right now? Self-identifying as an orc. Yeah, why not? I think I could get away with that, actually. But So like, Marin, is, is this the division between, you know, fans and, and critics? I guess, is that a, do you see it as the, being as an updated version of a kind of traditional division between you know what critics find good and what is popular that like the specific uh, notion of fandom in this case works differently it's not just something that someone might instantaneously find enjoyable contra the critics but actually they're invested in in a more significant way right i think they are invested in 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 different things so the fandom uh, is usually along the lines of uh, quite well let's say woke uh, millennial interests yeah, so they 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 love it because um, you know they they like the representation of of, of the orcs in this kind of um, in this Netflix program, for example. Or they like uh, in Blade Runner, they like the represent. Oh, they didn't like the representation of women. That so it was an anti-feminist film, and you know there was a big backlash against that. Whereas the critics say, oh, maybe the film's more subtle, has got more merit than that. Um, maybe it works on a different level. Maybe it asks more interesting questions. So, I've, so there's always been a dude, probably discrepancy between hardcore fans and critics because they get something different out of this. But what they get out of it is also defined by our times, and that is this kind of really shallow understanding of how film works and the kind of experience you get out of this. So I get loads of students also that say they can't enjoy something because it's too white. I mean, what kind of what kind of enjoyment do you get in life anyway? If you, if you, if that is your <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> so, but it's, it's, it's really true. And it, and it's, and it's is, it your white, is it your white students who say that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course they're white. Come on. <laughs> So it's it's very trendy, but they they they, they literally feel this way. You know, they cannot. They're quite quite remarkable. And I think there's something um, a way that maybe watching media is being taught in schools because you know criticizing for something for lack of correct representation is is like any idiot can do this. So maybe that's how that's how people just try and look clever so i mean that's that's obviously our 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 game trying to look look clever <laughs> so um it's, me. yeah anybody who's uh yeah studying film as well so um i guess there's a whole big sort of topic that we haven't really touched on yet 
And this is the other big political um, context, which I, I guess is driving and informing Hollywood and, and the production and reception of films. And this is obviously the, the, the Weinstein scandal. So what do you think? Do you think this has had uh, an effect on, I guess, you know, proximately on the on the Oscar nominations um, or just, I guess, the reception of film more generally? Or do you think it will be a bit more a bit more delayed? Well, obviously, it already had a big effect, you know, it already eliminated people uh, (laughs) who in any way um, are a suspect of misconduct. So Spacey has been completely erased from the entertainment history. But uh, in terms of Oscar nominations, um, the James Franco film, The Disaster Artist, was, you know, very smoothly replaced with The Phantom's Thread, it looks like. So um, Franco has also been accused of, of, I don't know, I don't know exactly what he's been accused of, of, of I don't know, being being James Franco probably, and uh, yeah, not that I care about him. He seems like an ass, but um, so so his, his film has been dropped, and the disaster disaster artist seemed like a good, you know, was nominated for a Golden Globe. So, and it was a very Hollywood film, so it, it should have. Really thought it was going to be nominated for an Oscar, but they didn't. They pulled it. Also, one of the best films last year, I thought, was a film called Wind River with Jeremy, Jeremy Renner. And everybody thought that was going to go up for an, any kind of award. But, of course, it's a Weinstein film company, so it was completely pulled. So, so that didn't you see any uh, recognition there. So beyond so, beyond the dropping of in individual films, do you think there was going to be a going to be a, a a a deeper effect? I mean, is it is it essentially just a case of of let's identify the 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 bad apples, make sure that they don't produce any more films, and then essentially carry on as as usual? Well, this whole times up momentum that that Hollywood or Hollywood stars seem to um, carry badges about. It's, it's very cynical. It's supposed to help all the women in, this, in the industry. You know, we are here for all the women who work in the industry, but we don't see any of the real women who work there. And it's not even those who get the real abuse on film set. It's, it's always the runners, the drivers, the assistants, like the dogs' bodies who get yelled at. And it's often by the actors, you know, and the stars who actually abuse the kind of dog's body people. So when Uma Thurman has to say no to this kind of Weinstein leching, I hope women who work with her on set tell her to get lost, honestly. That's just... So it's not a it's not a movement that is carried by real women who work in Hollywood and work really bad jobs. So will it have more momentum? Probably. So, But... It will die out and then come back up again. So the kind of how are we treated on screen? You know, how does how do directors treat the actors? And, you know, the the last tango in Paris has already been debated several years ago when Maria Schneider came out and said, "Oh, I was very badly mistreated." So it's not a new debate. It just seems to have gained a bit of momentum. But we live in these times where there's kind of weird prudish times in which stars seem to make their own dim 
you know, see themselves as this kind of victim of directorial, um, the, the directorial gaze, so to speak. And I think that already started sort of in the early noughties when uh, America came up with what I call American sex on television, when, you know, in sex scenes, women just constantly leave their bra on in American films. And you just go, what the fuck is this about? You know, <laughs> who came up with this? But it's in their contract that they don't want to be shown in this kind of titillating way. So the, they just show sex scene with a woman with their bra on. And I just like, oh, it's just so American. <laughs> so is that, is that what Americans do now? <laughs> so I mean, notice. So in, in most sort of um, films in America, if they do a sex scene, then women have always have their bra on, but yeah. no pants. Just the weirdest thing. Yeah, I've seen you refer to this before as American sex. Like that's that's what it's. it's is that is that your coinage? That's my coinage. It, it has, has upset me for a while. People might just think that's you know that they're going to particularize that because of course Americans love to portray everything that is American culture as as somehow a global norm, um, from which you know Germans deviate from because they're they're strange, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I guess moving on from talking about about American sex and about the, the <laughs> we yeah. can talk about it some more. <laughs> Why not? To, to talk about world world sex, world world culture. <laughs> so it is a global politics podcast. <laughs> it is a global politics podcast. It is a bunga bunga party. We don't we don't want to we don't want to encourage that. We're, you know, it's it's about transcending <laughs> transcending the no, moment of bunga bunga. If, so if, is, if Americans seem to appropriate all the cultures, why don't they just appropriate other people's sexual cultures as well, honestly? <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, to, to, to repeat perhaps that that segue then. So <laughs> um, one of the things that we, we've been trying to do, I guess, with this podcast a little bit is identify some of these characteristics of the, the current cultural and political moment. Um, and also, I guess, some of the ways in which politics seems a bit re-energized in the past 18 or so months and and so your 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 research is partly on on some of the aspects of the post post politics in in film so mm. what do you think that we can we can read or or, or what do 2017's films tell us about this the state of this of, of world culture of of um if you want to say late late capitalist culture or however exactly you want to frame it what are the defining or shared traits of these films that we've been discussing that stand out to you um, I think if, if I look at the whole bunch of, of in film nominations, I think there's the, 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 what combines all the films that is um, the, the, uh, they all portray, portray a fear of being helpless. Yeah. So from Get Out, it's the kind of um, helplessness of, of hypnosis, of not being heard. Um, the Darkest Hour and, and Dunkirk, the kind of helplessness in, in the face of, of an enemy, um, the Shape of Water, the kind of helplessness and and, and and the post, the helplessness towards the kind of system, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I think is a wonderful film. And here the, the kind of helplessness is, is extremely human. These are these characters who feel very helpless, but they but it shows them dealing with this kind of helplessness in, in very, very human ways. And I thought it was really great. So the feeling of helplessness is what combines all these films in one way or another. What 
in my opinion. But also, um, they, they're very interesting because most of them are actually set in the past, in a very particular past. It's always the kind of post-war period of America when America was trying to reinvent itself. And many of them look back, so films like Mudbound or um, Shape of Water. Um, they look back at the past as this kind of cartoonish past where everything was kind of cartoonishly bad. And, uh, if, you know, it seems to be like a repeat of of this kind of uh, old show, the Nazis are warning from history, but it's now, uh, you know, patriarchy, a warning from history, or <laughs> racism, a warning from history. This is the kind of feel I get from the, the films that we're being shown at the moment. So very, very nostalgic and, and fear of, of helplessness. Alex, Phil, what do you, what do you make of, of this characterization, which I think sounds very interesting? I feel nostalgic and helpless all the time, so. I <laughs> so you're well placed to comment. I'm well, yeah. I'm like a middle-aged white man who feels like deeply threatened by the contemporary era. <laughs> um, it's an interesting thought, and it never occurred to me. And I think there's, um, I think there's now. I mean, when it's kind of pointed out, it seems to make a lot of sense actually that it brings all of these. Um, elements together and it's a yeah, it's an interesting observation so is is the flip side of this found in in superhero films which seem to just continued their stranglehold on on the, the kind of tentpole blockbuster space i mean is, is that is that but it's kind infantile, of looking, looking isn't it but it's sorry? an infant it's an infantile response though isn't it yeah yeah and that's 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 the point that you have if you have a fear of being helpless a fear of not being able to to control yeah. your your destiny you look to uh you look to the the justice league for example which i just wanted to drop in there was was i think just the not only the worst film of this year but one of the worst films i've ever seen it's too <laughs> because it's two bad films not added together they're kind of multiplied um together <laughs> and it's just it's not only pointless but it's it's also very very boring um, very so yeah so so Marin, what what do you you know, do you think this is related to this 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 yearning for, or, or are we just uh, like reading too much into it and saying, yeah, we're all we're all scared of being helpless, so so it's a bit infantilizing. The whole thing has been going on for for a long time, so, so it started even before Obama. So um, America seeking refuge in superheroes seems to be um, like a really banal answer, and that's the only answer America seems to have to offer, but. I'm holding out for really interesting films. I think um, they, they, they're, at least we're out of the kind of apocalypse age, you know, where every film, you know, every every three months there's a film where the world's going to end. That seems to be over. Sort of mm. zombies seems to be over. But it is a kind of, um, yeah, it's a reinvention of the past that people are obsessed with at the moment. And... That seems to be quite interesting. So, so the, the end of the end of the world. Forward looking. There's nothing that's forward looking. That's. I mean, that's interesting about the about the kind of collapse and catastrophe fascination, which I think um, I think this was something that idea gained broader prominence with Adam Curtis's 
uh, hypernormalization where he points out with this great montage that he does that all these films envisaging the end of the world or some massive catastrophe um, some attack by aliens or whoever uh, actually kind of came about in the, in the kind of even before 9-11 right the, there's this whole montage and he yeah. kind of um, and so I think we kind of tend to associate that fascination with collapse or catastrophe with something that has co- happened after the after 9-11 and certainly after the global financial crisis but no it, it, it was a cultural kind of trope which very much predated it so it's interesting that now geez 10 years on from the financial crisis you think that it's actually moving on to, to something a little bit more I guess nostalgic is that is that how you'd put it I mean is that the the kind of yeah, dominant think, theme yeah the resurgence of, 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 of musicals, the resurgence of, of quite um, of, of the Amer- American rewriting of American history upon long these kind of politically correct lines seems to be a, 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 um, something that people are really buying into. So films that are done politically correct, and uh, you know you cannot you cannot deviate from this line. You know, otherwise the the people who read films in, uh, according to the new laws of reading films according to representation will be on your ass. And films will only be debated around these kind of uh, tropes. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if there's going to be anybody who's going to be very daring, a daring filmmaker. So you just know, just, just to kind of put, put you on the spot a little bit then. So... We we didn't actually I didn't actually ask you what your what your favorite film of the year was or what, what do you think there is a space for this this kind of probably to go going too far to saying resistance to this to to this kind well, of mainstream I, I, way of reading films. Yeah, as I said, I really really like three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri because I think it was a nice. It's done by a European, so it's and it's and Europeans always tell better stories about Americans than Americans do. You know, it's the old Billy Wilder thing. He goes to America and tells the best American films, and I think um, the best tales about some plays are told by outsiders. And he tells this super American tale, and all the characters are over the top but they're true and they're, they've got humanity that complex and they deal with this kind of feeling of helplessness and in, in these very very accessible ways and it's it's, it's quite heartwarming and um yeah i don't th- i don't know anybody who's not could not be moved by this i also like the fact that it goes outside this kind of anglo-american desire that everything has to be natural and realistic and authentic because it isn't it's so over the top but in a nice subtle way so yeah i thought it was a really good film i liked um what's this uh it's not nominated but um yeah the florida project i really like that as well it's really really um sweet story I have to say, three billboards left me left me quite cold, but I'm not not an expert, so I should probably uh, not not try and defend that. So you are an expert, George. You're like you're selling yourself short. No, I I just watched some films. You just watched films. <laughs> <laughs> like what did you like? Yeah, what did what, you like? What did I like? Oh, call yeah, me by Mr. your name. Call me by your name, and secondarily, Star Wars. So there's, I just lay lay my cards out there. That's a pretty mix. Yeah, um, but it's more interesting what what um, 
I guess so we've we've touched on this a little bit already this kind of the end of the end of the end of the world or the this this kind of period of 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 films with just complete catastrophes as the centerpiece we talked on the ecology episode um which is episode 25 as i'm sure hardcore fans already know um with journalist lee phillips about collapse porn um so do you think that this this these kind of terrible catastrophist environmental flicks do you think that this is this is decisively over are we going to see things like geostorm come back um or do you think there's going to be new new ways to imagine the end of the world kind of technologically uh, driven ones yeah there, there's still some in production so we're going to see a few more especially with some uh, containing the rock but um right that's great <laughs> can, we can get behind that though yeah but i think that i think the mo- at the moment the market is uh, sort of saturated i think we need to wait a few more years till people can can tell a really good end of the world story um so um it seems to be people seem to always imagine the end of the world when when they they're actually quite hopeful about you know they 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 really took off when Obama was uh, president and people thought oh everything's going to be great but what took off were apocalypse films and uh, apocalypse zombie films and so on so you know at least at least maybe with Trump the the the, the positive effect is that people actually try and um, think outside this kind of doom and gloom, but try and think of how to sort of imagine themselves out of this. I mean, is it, is, is it, is it always the case, though, that the, the, um, this, this, the film has to finish with, with the world being saved? Because I'm kind of thinking that the, the extreme reaction to Trump would be one of these end-of-the-world films where nobody is, is saved. There's kind of a... Melancholia. Know, Lies von Trier's melancholia. So yeah, good point. It's already happened. Yeah, that was a long time before Trump. It's true. It was. We should ask Lars what he's up to at the moment. Maybe he's uh, yeah. Get him on the musical. Making a musical. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've <laughs> never understood musicals. I'll be, I'll be brutally honest. It's just bad. Like it, it's bad music and and bad films. I don't, I just don't. I don't understand the psyche of somebody who's who's like these for a long time. It's like Lots. cheerfulness. It's dancing, moving to the rhythm. You got to get with the flow, George. Like you're but, too stiff but and uptight. Music already exists. <laughs> yeah, music already what exists. What do you mean, music already exists? No, music People already don't... exists. Like you have, mu- you know, like dancing and 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 all that. You know, enjoying music. Like that already exists as an art form. You don't need musicals as well. We don't need lots of things, but like we want them. People, people don't dance in the cinema to musicals, do they? Yeah, Mara, they... What, what, what were you going to say? You had that. Some... Are you, were you going to admit to dancing in the in the, <laughs> the, the, the seats at, uh, at La La Land? I'm not going to admit to anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, me... yeah, I think the, the only musical I really like is Book of Mormon, but that's because done by the south park guys exactly that's a great musical thank you there you go <laughs> that is a fantastic musical that's it that's it like that's the one musical that people who don't like musicals like like myself there's I'm a sure good there's um, a, what about greece there you go <laughs> the planet of the apes musical in the simpsons is good but it's not <laughs> <actually exist. laughs> i think so, all 
old spoof musicals are really good. Yeah. Because they get to the essence of musicals quickly. Yes, they get, that's right. They, 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 they find what is good about musicals, uh, concentrate it, and just make fun of it. So any kind of spoof musical is, is excellent. That's a, yeah, a good. So <laughs> mo- mo- moving on from, um, I think, an untoppable observation about, about musicals, we've talked um, about Game of Thrones in another previous episode um and this was touching on a lot of the, the aspects that we we mentioned earlier around around i guess fans and fan culture um so here's here's a big big question you don't have to give a, a short or, or complete answer but what do you think is the role of a film in culture more widely now that we've got these high budget um high quality tv shows that we can stream or download illegally and watch at home that really have some of the characteristics that we might only previously have been able to access through film yeah I, I, it's really interesting because you know the the mudbound film is on netflix it's be, it's nominated for best cinematography in the oscars mm. and you know a film that's nominated for best cinematography and you can only watch it on netflix which people watch on their ipads <laughs> and that is really, uh, extremely interesting so there's the kind of thing oh, you know i think Ma- yeah max was right and when he says that, that when you know quantity affects quality or as i call it size matters right um so there is a kind of difference to see something uh, you know 10 by 20 meters big yeah, yeah. And, and then watching it on your ipad and you probably do something else while you're watching something on the small screen so um i don't know for example i watched dunkirk on the small screen and i probably did it wrong because i thought it was really boring you know but it was this massive you know it was filmed on imax and people say you had to go into the cinema to watch it so i don't know where where this will lead what you know can can something like a, a cinematic film being shown on Netflix and obviously it can it got a nomination for best cinematography and that is a really interesting nomination as well the cinematography is great is it cinematic I will never know <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really sad about this um, so there I think that, that that's that's a debate that or something that needs to be I don't know either it plays itself out or it's going to be have to be had you know so if, if, if well, that's if that's if that's one side of it then the other side is i guess a, a kind of a more direct question is should we should we give as much critical attention to films now that we have things like like game of thrones really like um these these kind of multi-part very widely watched um high high culture question mark um <laughs> t, t tv um filmic experiences yeah so but are they filmic experiences so that that's that's always my question you know do you, you you watch these things differently than you do things at the cinema and so maybe there is something to the kind of format of cinema that that lends itself to a kind of well-rounded story it has a beginning a middle and an end tv series never end <laughs> you know, there's no there's no resolution there there's no it's 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 and if you, but maybe you can say that about cinema films that they then put a spin-off on something, but it's still a kind of self-contained unit, which film series don't seem to be anymore. So, who knows? But 
I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, whatever you would say about Breaking Bad and, and thinking perhaps it's very overrated, at least it did. It did have an end. But on the other hand, Star Wars. Star Wars is still still going. We had the <laughs> yeah, the Han Solo trailer just out, and it and it seems like they could. Why stop at nine? Uh, why not go Maybe 12, 15 it's, episodes? It's sort of merging, amalgamating, it becomes one and the same. Who knows? That would be quite interesting. Um. So, <laughs> Alex, to put, to put you on the spot a little bit as well, because I think you're you're more skceptical of films sometimes than than I than I am. No, I'm 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 just I'm just Alex. grossly grossly underqualified to even speak mm-hmm. on this topic because I don't watch very many films at all. Um and I it's actually like a real effort for me. I think lots of people experience this, but you know, real effort to sit down and watch a film especially at home. Uh, I don't even have a TV at home, so that kind of impedes my viewing experience as well, you know, just having watched it on a laptop. But even making myself go to the cinema. I'd watched I I consume a hell of a lot of TV series, good ones, I think. I don't have very much patience for things which are, like, this is going to sound snobbish, but just merely entertaining. I get very bored quite easily. (laughs) Um, And and so, I don't know, that's... I I don't know if that's representative of of other people. I think, having had conversations about this, I think it is. You know, this idea that you just have a difficulty sitting down uh, to watch a film, that, that you know, you have the whole narrative arc told to you in, in an hour and a half, two hours, two hours and a half, uh, versus watching a series which you're already kind of you've already entered into and so you can you know you, you can get the full richness of a of a film but only but spread over a much longer period i don't know so it so it's not the classic millennial kind of gripe or thing attributed that your attention span is span is too short it's in fact that the the films are too short that you want you want something longer you actually <laughs> want a story told well i mean the idea of sitting down for two hours to watch a film i'm it's going to really i really struggle with that but to sit down and like binge watch something for four hours i'll like easily do maybe this evening you know is tv is tv feminine and movies are masculine is that it <laughs> i think we've just proven you are wrong <laughs> so phil what, what 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 do you mean by that <laughs> please don't ask him it to elaborate sounded, <laughs> it sounded like you know it sounded um well like um you know it's kind of more emotionally involved it's more drawn out you know it's like somebody talking to you for hours about their feelings you know that's that's tv it's <laughs> like a movie is like you know compact to the point you know like here's the story here you go here's your thing it's straightforward honest you know gets the job done move on next mm. thing and you know it's yeah, you know it's going to finish after not too long. So exactly, exactly. It's like a night out with your buddy, and not like having to listen to somebody talk about their feelings mm. or what they dreamt about last night for hours on end. So, Marin, as as an expert, I mean, obviously, if you if you <laughs> if you do use this theory in in your next published <laughs> book or article, you have to you have to cite Phil. Um, do you, what? I guess the, the question here is more what what's is is there any anxiety in i guess amongst film scholars that as something along the lines of what alex said that hmm. maybe we're expecting that a story is now told told over 10 hours 15 or think about the wire 50 hours so there's a there's a bit bit of a more difficult challenge fam- uh, facing filmmakers who want to do a classic hour and a half or 2 hour film that they have to somehow develop characters pretty quickly and get you get you hooked in which which is tricky. I, I think they're two different beasts, and I think there's a kind of you know the, the 
filmmakers have always faced uh, adversary in, in terms of what is cinema. So, uh, you know, with the advent of, of digital filming, for example, you know, is that still cinema? It's not films, you know, it's just something done with pixels. It's not photography. Is that still cinema? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of what is still cinema seems to be always in flux. So I don't think anybody's really scared. It's just really interesting in, term, in these terms. But who watches what? I, I don't know. It's usually people who've got lots of time watch a lot of television. <laughs> Alex, the freelancer, has time to, to wait before replying, replying to that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, the idea of, of cinema, I mean, it's a quite expensive hobby. You know, if, you, if, if I go to the cinema, I want, first of all, I want to see a good film and I want to see my money's worth. You know, I want to see those at £15. Uh, on the screen and if I see something you know you know something boring handheld it has to be extremely good to earn that money from me so and but on the television you can see really expensive stuff uh, you know for, for almost free so to speak so there's a kind of idea of, of consumption there that that is kind of different you know if you if you then go to the cinema and pay a tenner, you will concentrate, yeah. So mm. and you you will invest in it. You don't have that obligation when you watch something on Netflix or Amazon. You 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 can allow yourself to sort of dip in and dip out. It's also uh, what you said is true about people kind of consuming social media and doing other things at the same time as they're watching one of these kind of TV shows. You could also say it's kind of more, I think you can also say cinema is more social, um, at least in the sense that you kind of, you're likely to go with somebody. Um, and also you have to conform to certain kinds of social rules rather than just, you know, kind of uh, uh, slumming it at home, kind of, you know, wearing whatever you want, eating ice cream like a slob, you know, watching some crap and whatever. Um it's still an event. You invest in it. Yeah. You, know, you invest yourself. You invest your time and energy. Um, if I watch four hours of Netflix, which I do, I I also invest, but it's, it's a different kind of investment. You know, I, I double screen. I've got my phone. I look stuff up. <laughs> I pause. You know, I make pasta in between. Um, so, and 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 the, the the shows are designed for this. You know, you 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 create television shows that you can pause and you can dip in and out, and um, it doesn't matter if if you if you break for for have a have a half an hour break in between or so. Film cinematic films are not designed this way. You cannot really have a a break in between. You have to, you know, suspend your disbelief for these one and a half hours, and it's exhausting. Yeah, you know, you come out of the cinema and you feel a bit beaten up, but that's a good thing. So I think that's a that's a great point to, to to wrap it up. So hopefully, listener, if you've reached the end of this podcast, you won't feel too exhausted, too uh, too beaten up. Um, and also, of course, pod- podcast no, is free. No, wait, no, 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 wait. Marin said it's a good thing if you feel beaten up. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, hopefully you will feel feel beaten up then. Yeah, we just beat the shit out of you, and you're grateful for it. Um, send yeah. somebody round with a baseball bat. If you don't, if you don't subscribe which you can do on, on Podbean or, or, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it for this week. We're back on the 21st of February with Ashley Frawley talking about therapeutic politics. 
Tell your friends and please subscribe or Marin will beat you. Catch you later. Bye-bye.